0: Hello, welcome to Episode 3 of The War Pod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme, a London-based research initiative focusing on remote warfare, the trend where states support local and regional forces on the front lines rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. The Remote Warfare Programme is part of the Oxford Research Group, a peace and security think tank. I'm Abigail Watson, Senior Research Officer. In this episode, we'll be joined by our director, Emily Knowles, as well as Rory Cormack and Andrew Mumford from the University of Nottingham. We will discuss their new project on collusion and explore whether there are parallels between their work and our own research into remote warfare. Enjoy the show.
1: Hi, so I'm here with Andrew Mumford and Rory Cormack at the University of Nottingham. We're just about to start a new project on collusion. So it'd be really interesting if you could just talk us through uh, what gave you the idea for this project, what was really the impetus of, of starting new work on this at this point?
2: A confluence of um, our research agenda sort of working around that very issue of how and why do states create alliances with various different states and non-state actors what we're trying to understand what motivates them to take the form of actions that they do in a sort of non-obvious indirect rather dark and secret way and we felt it was about time that we started to shed some light on these sort of dark corners of foreign policy making here in the uk um and we we it was a conference, also of, of broader policy discussions that were happening at the time. If you, if you remember, a couple of years ago when uh, Gavin Williamson first became defence secretary, he was making a lot of talk. In fact, I think it was one of his first, um, one of his first press conferences. He openly said that he would actively embrace the idea of killing all British ISIS members yeah. who mm-hmm. were still in Syria and Iraq. Right. I do remember
1: that one now.
2: That put British Collusion in Targeted Killing, which is the specific um, focus of mine and Rory's new research project, Collusion in Targeted Killing, that, that brought that right to the front and centre of British defence policy options, and it made headline news, and it got us thinking about the ways in which, A, what are the policy repercussions of adopting collusion with other states, which has happened before, if you look at you know, Jihadi John. Um, Intelligence sharing with the US in order to kill a British citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, but also try and think about the, the historical lineage that has got us to a point whereby defense secretaries think it's viable as an option to collude with other states or maybe even non state actors historically to, to kill enemies of the state. And it got us thinking about where this, where this had come from. Williamson wasn't pulling this out of a hat. Um, we know that there's a long history. I like when he was Whatever that's happened true. to him. <laughs> that's true. But um it got us thinking about whether this there was a particularly British approach to this sort of behaviour. Um where we think we can pinpoint the beginning of this behaviour and where it's where it's taken us historically.
3: Because all the talk is always about Northern Ireland, isn't it? It's always, Mm. whenever anyone says collusion, in the killing context, as opposed to Suez-style collusion, it's always Ireland, Ireland, Ireland. And that's kind of accepted. Now, there's been so many inquiries going over the same cases, and they're all kind of saying the same thing. And so we're wondering, well, was Ireland a one-off? Surely Britain fought in other similar kind of... um, end of empire uh, unconventional conflicts is still fighting unconventional conflicts now. So this whole collusion in Northern Ireland thing, it can't be a one-off. It must be part of a broader approach. Where, where does it come from and, and what's the legacy um,
2: today?
1: Do mm, so you have any sense of what case studies you're going to be looking at then going back? or?
2: So we've become quite interested in the idea about where it became strategic. Mm where it becomes intrinsic to Britain's approach. So we've sort of rested rested on the idea, haven't we, that, that actually the, the, the SOE in World War II is pretty important in this. If you look at the, the activities that Britain undertook with partisans um, across Yugoslavia and Mediterranean, um, behind the Eastern Front, that this, this collusion with non-state actors in order to, to kill enemy combatants becomes important in sort of Churchill's notions of ungentlemanly conduct of warfare. Um, but then Britain, after even after the end of World War II, Britain doesn't have much time to sort of pause and reflect on its way of warfare because the unravelling of empire, as, Britain, as Roy's already mentioned, the, the colonial small wars of decolonisation across Malaya, across Kenya, Palestine, Cyprus, offer again these important opportunities for the uk to try and um extricate themselves from these hot localized conflicts safe face stage manager withdrawal from empire but still try and ensure that the whole sort of post imperial security situation is, is to their political liking and that involved um working with organizations paramilitary organizations rival militia groups to try and engineered that extraction from empire that that was very messy but allowed for a little bit of underhand activity on the side too
3: in a lot of these cases you, there's more than one actor involved isn't there? so you've got the, the brits as the main counterinsurgent against the insurgents but there's always a few kind of loyalist uh groups knocking about in malaya or in um, cyprus with the the, the turkish paramilitan groups um yemen and aden and south arabia um so one would assume, and in fact, um, SAS doctrine from nineteen sixty nine explicitly says that their aim is to co opt, work with locally recruited forces, um, to guerrilla forces. It says to w- work against a common enemy. Um, <laughs> so this must be pretty common in a lot of end of empire, a lot of end of empire uh, conflicts. And so we're just trying to work out. Is that, ca- is that the case? Why? What are the factors determining this, and how relevant is it today?
0: And can I just jump in and ask? Uh, when you're talking about collusion, <coughs> how broad a definition? What what are the aspects of that? What does collusion look like? How are you defining it in each of these case studies?
3: Well, we, it's a tricky one. because we don't we don't we don't want to define it differently per case study. We want to try and um, have a working <coughs> definition, um, but obviously. There is debates and each of the um, various inquiries into Ireland have slightly different, depending on how broadly you want to define how actively versus passively you want to define it. And I think that um, the kind of working definition we would adopt would be similar to that adopted by Desmond de Silva, who did the most recent Finucane, um inquiry. And he said, look, it's, it's got to be active, so it's got to be... Um, agents of the state um, agents of the state uh, aiding through giving weapons or, inf- or information to, to militant groups but it's also can be, it also can be passive so turning a blind eye um, willfully ignoring not investigating things properly but the, the distinction that, that De Silva makes is that the, the passive element of collusion has to be deliberate so it's government agents willingly ignoring <laughs> The activity of of of, <coughs> of of um paramilitary paramilitary actors, otherwise it becomes really 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 broad. If it's if it's they weren't aware, um, they were accidentally not aware through inefficiencies or through um, just not being on top of their brief. <laughs> does that does that constitute collusion? But in some senses, maybe, maybe there are examples of when the state is deliberately keeping ministers unaware. And that allegation has been raised about Ireland a few times. But for me anyway, I think it's, it can be active and passive, but it's got to have that sense of deliberateness. Otherwise, it can just be incompetence. I,
0: and beyond sort of charting the lineage of this, th- beyond Northern Ireland beyond the obvious cases, what, what would be the desired outcome of this project? What are you hoping to look at and what are you expecting the outcomes to be?
2: I think one of the key things is trying to understand and comprehend whether there is actually a a British way of collusion, something that that defines the way in which um, the British state over the last half a century or more has gone about trying to um, engineer outcomes in particular conflicts through passive or active collusion with other states or non-state actors. Um, One of the things we've done as part of our preliminary research, we were in Belfast a couple of weeks ago, Um, we've done a couple of large-scale archival scoping exercises digitally, uh, and what's emerging is a a pattern of creating conditions whereby an outcome can be engineered. It's not necessarily direct interference in in an obvious way. No, um, No smoking guns placed in other people's hands is it but it's it's a lot of engineering of of situations whereby the outcome can be um, manipulated through uh, exercising the the uh, the utility of certain groups now that's interesting for us because that doesn't look necessarily like your, your sort of classic collusion um, there are various forms it can take that we're interested in trying to explore. Whether it's passing on intelligence or not passing on intelligence, in some cases um, that can result in the death of an enemy combatant. Um, how high how high up does it go? Now that seems to be part and parcel of the a lot of the current literature on on, on collusion. As Roy's as already said, most of it is focused on Northern Ireland. A lot of it is pushing a line about. Top-down modes of collusion. This is coming from Number Ten, right? This this sort of um...
3: It's coming from the jick. Yeah. Anyone anyone <coughs> ever read? Yeah. jick assessment, They were very. The jick did nothing. Of, nothing that. Uh, nothing that interesting or tactical. It's all very. Yeah. Uh, uh, analysis and assessments. And I'm always shocked when these these, particularly the um, uh, more advocacy literature, blames the jick for collusion because yeah. having spent. A long time writing a book on the jit and assessments. No. No. (laughs) So it's locating the sources. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Locating the the, the level at which collusion occurred is going to be important to identifying how, what this British way looked like. And so far we've not found anything that points to top down collusion. It was not necessarily a state policy. Um, That's not to say it didn't occur. So we're trying to navigate a path between two very clear, distinct poles in the literature right now, which is on the one hand, the advocacy literature that Rory's already mentioned, that's associated with Northern Ireland, which tries to push a line about um, strategic state level collusion, collusion as state policy. Um, That that Thatcher was pushing this um, throughout the 80s as a personal way of trying to tackle the troubles. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got sort of the the complete denials that collusion never occurred, the sort of more sort of orthodox official state line, which we also know not to be particularly true. So We're trying to chart this course in the middle that identifies the location of collusion, the causes of that collusion, the consequences of that collusion um, in, in order to try and understand how we got to a point now where we're trying to deal with, say, British citizens fighting for ISIS um through northern ireland through those colonial small wars um of the 50s and 60s all the way back to world war
3: ii and just picking up on that british way idea i think that's really interesting when we when we consider target to kill it well, assassination I know, putting aside the various <laughs> definition issues when we consider assassination people think of the cia and um poison darts and castro and everything and there's, there's an american way of doing this um, the golden age of the fifties, obviously, and then constrained, and then various legal justifications to targets of killing. These days, we also think of Israel and the Mossad, very famous for its um, thorough targeted killing program. <laughs> shall, shall, shall we say? Um, but when people say, well, "What's what's the British approach? How how do how do Britain think about targeted killing?" We we don't have the same history. I mean, there are times when MI six has plotted. Uh, killing certain leaders, NASA being the most famous example. There are plenty of times when MI6 has been asked to kill a foreign leader and they've said, no, no foreign secretary, we we don't do that kind of thing. Um, so we don't have that same tradition as the Americans or the Israelis, but we don't mind other people doing it on our behalf, at least historically, um, having looked at enough of these archival files from... Um, the SIS side of things and the Foreign Office side of things. We don't have the tradition of, of killing people. James Bond doesn't exist. There's no license to kill going around bumping people off left, right and center. But we're not averse if someone, if, I say we, the British government, disclaimer I do not work for the British government. <laughs> um, if, if somebody in one of these end of empire wars or in decolonization, Iran 53, for example, if somebody dies that the British state didn't mind dying, that's that was kind of okay
1: yeah that's so interesting because you you mentioned jihadi john in your or muhammad amwazi in in your opening statement and these statements from the british government about how we operated you know hand in glove with the americans over that that strike which the americans took um in the end and it it, it's interesting to me that especially given your backgrounds of diversity in in covert action and and proxy warfare and you know, how, how does how does this pull on past? Because this, this sounds similar and distinct from, you know, how we might think of proxy wars of the past or covert action of the past. So mm. I think it'd be really useful to tease through how collusion is part of that, maybe different to that, and how, like, modern day might mm. be different from the I, I,
2: It could involve all of those elements because my previous work on proxy wars, and bo- both of us, um, both of us sort of take... Quite long historical views in our in our work, know, whether it's mine on proxy wars or, or Rory's on covert action. So, if we're looking at collusion, we can we can try and see and understand how historically that has involved both trying to utilise um, other actors outside of the British military system to work alongside, both either formally or informally, um, and can involve facilitating other states to undertake acts of covert action that can be based on British intelligence. So it's actually, the, the project is a sort of a nice confluence of our previous work and it's nice to be able to, to work together actually for the first time, on, considering we're working on tangential areas of, of research for so long. But He just wanted a friend. <laughs> That shared left. burden <laughs> Ex- yeah. that's it so, that's someone it.
1: else to write up the eventual research papers about, so. <laughs>
2: exactly um, well one of us needed a telegenic face the other's the face for, the other's face for radio and podcasts <laughs> um, so please leave <laughs> um, the, the opportunity though it, it serves to sort of think about the, the, the processes of decision making yeah. Yeah. we're quite looking we're interested in we've been looking a lot at outcomes but this project on collusion is looking more at those, the decisions that led to outcomes, um, about why the UK um, political system, the UK defence establishment was more keen to try and undertake more indirect acts of, of intervention in certain conflicts, or try and ensure that if ultimately a, a, an act of targeted killing was, was deemed necessary, why Britain didn't go down the, the American or the Israeli route of getting our own hands dirty. Um, and trying to explain that is, is intriguing to us. Hmm. And is there anything else you wanted
0: to add from the covert
2: action? Well, I suppose it,
3: it kind of came out of the research I was doing for the, the book on British covert action, which was, because um, one of the big questions is, does, MI, does, did MI6 go around covertly killing people in a way the CIA? did. Um, no, is, is the answer. But there were time and time again, I came up with examples of where covert action was deliberately used to create a climate conducive to a particular person being killed. Now, whether that was through propaganda, trying to discredit a particular target, um, going all about to the Iranian coup in 1953, when Britain was deliberately smearing certain um, leaders loyal to the prime minister, uh, and then if one of those people happened to be killed, like the chief of police was, so be it. And all the way through to some of the more recent um, de- declassifications about Northern Ireland, where in the eighties MI five were launching propaganda designed to unnerve uh, Republican paramilitants, and Fennan kind of got wrapped up in that. So that this this pattern of using propaganda to unnerve um, people the state didn't like, people thorn in the side of the states. And then it, it almost becomes inevitable that these people will become a, a victim of a, of a killing. So you've got, um, you've got well my favourite example actually was from the 50s, when Britain wanted to kill Ho Chi Minh. And obviously Britain doesn't do that kind of thing because it's terribly un-British. So the plan went like this we don't just kill Ho Chi Minh. What they did, they pl- planned to do, was start an argument inside the Politburo. That argument would then escalate to the extent that someone else kills Ho Chi Minh as a consequence <laughs> of the argument, which which we the, Br- which the Brits would have started. Um, it obviously never happened, or I don't know if it was approved or not, but it obviously didn't work. Um, but that's that's a kind of a, a classic example of how Britain was, was doing this and Lumumba in 1961 is another example uh, first democratically elected leader of Congo obviously um, killed largely at the, at, the, at the authority of the Belgians um, But the British hand and the American hand were behind there removing protection um, discrediting bribing people to uh, parliamentarians to criticize him um, discredit him smear him so you, you see this kind of almost double deniability that the, that the British hand is twice removed yeah. um, which was a was a pattern and that's something that, that we wanted to explore a little bit more
1: that's so interesting and uh, did you get a sense that this is a this is a strategy that has been evolving that you can see sort of lessons being learned throughout the UK experience and then you know uh, today are we looking at what you might Consider like a finely honed strategy on collusion that's built out of these decades of experience, or has this always been a sort of ad hoc? It's, I think it's bridge? ad hoc
3: because, well, for me anyway, um, it's it's a consequence of Britain not wanting to do, not wanting to get its hands dirty. Um, sometimes for normative reasons because we're Britain and we don't do that kind of thing. More often because they're worried about turning someone into a martyr. Um, more practical consequences and so this became a a consequence of that initial reluctance to do what the CIA might have done Um, and because it's an intangible consequence of policy rather than policy itself I don't think there's any kind of attempt to hone it into a strategy or anything it's almost like what would inevitably happen if we don't kill someone but various other policies are in place, such as um, such as um, operating in a kind of gray zone between war and peace without operational oversight, without coordination of different actors. Um, so it, became, it kind of becomes a quasi inevitable outcome rather than a strategy or a policy in itself. I, I certainly have seen no evidence to see if this is kind of coordinated at state level but I do think it's, it's, it's a consequence of other decisions.
0: I'm interested as well where, where you think the primary drivers for the ebbs and flows of this approach come from. Do you think it's a sense of domestic constraints around what our parliaments and publics would accept or is it based more on international relations and international reputation or somewhere in between the two?
2: I think one, one, one strand actually that's, Im, that's emerging right now is the autonomy of local leaders and local commanders. And if you, if you think about the ways in which say, um, individuals like Frank Kitson are able to sort of hone the pseudo gang technique in Kenya. Um, and then, well, be, I know Kitson becomes a bit of a bogeyman, doesn't he, for uh, for Irish Republicans. Um, but, the way in which that, that method or certain counterinsurgency elements that he is able to pioneer and can he get transferred to Northern Ireland, um, trying to think about ways in which local commanders are able to find innovative ways to collude with loyalists, with opposition forces, um, is actually quite interesting. And that's one way that we're trying to think about this, or Trying to revise this notion of top-down
3: yeah.
2: collusion, that actually that there, there seems to be some innovation going on at local level, um, but does buy in? You're right that it does buy into this notion of we have got to keep this um, fairly low key. We can't let this um, escalate into something bigger. But there are ideas that that start to get to be that start to be innovated on the ground that that we find interesting ways, kini mini operations in. In Yemen yeah. you know for example that, that okay r- rather crude by today's standards but they try to find innovative ways to, to try and um, infiltrate enemy um, personnel to try and undertake acts of targeted killing so all of these are are interesting sort of local level innovations that we're quite interested in that hopefully can allow us to try and revise notions of national level policy
3: I think a scrutiny point is a good one as well though which builds into your research on remote warfare is the um, the levels of when, when, when there is more scrutiny about an operation or there is um, which can lead to uh, public uh, resentment of troops boots on the ground the horrible phrase um, that creates we think, um, conditions which would enable collusion to flourish. Um, If there was less scrutiny, um, and it was miles and miles away on the far far side of the world, Malaya or somewhere, then you're more likely to A, see conventional forces doing bad and counterproductive stuff, which has since come to light. Um, Whereas if it's closer to home, like Ireland, where there is a lot more scrutiny, then and there was a lot of scrutiny of the so-called shoot-to-kill units and undercover you know, MRF um, that kind of stuff in the early 1970s. but I think the level of scrutiny if there's a lot of scrutiny. it can enable collusion to flourish, because you have again, you have that double deniability. Yeah. you have that extra hand removed. And I think that this, the idea of distance is, is quite important here
1: so interesting and i know that you've done a lot of work as well on you know deniability both plausible and implausible of of operations and we certainly have lots of discussions about you know the impact that the information environment today is having on the this idea of a secret operation or a secret relationship and i guess you know post things like the wikileaks um exposure of of diplomatic relations and, and the fact that you know conducting a secret bombing campaign in a in another country even if it is over the other side of the world seems to be you know not something that people could get away with now. Do you, do you see an impact of this sort of information age, information environment on things like collusion? Or, or does this level happen at a level of removal from official policy that still makes this sort of secret relationship possible?
3: Well, I think it's, it's lower. Yes, it's at a lower level. But um, you the, the, because of the, more, the difficulty of keeping things secret and plausibly deniable why take the risk of then tasking somebody to do something mm. which is illegal improper dodgy or whatever you think of it um, why even if, even if it's kind of covert why take that risk instead and as the British like are, can't comment on the current stuff because it's not really my field, but in the, in the older times, the, the older times, <laughs> <laughs> typical <laughs> typical in the, the biblical days, in days of yore, <laughs> in post 45 international history, uh, um, when it was still very difficult to keep things secret, yeah. the Brits decided well, instead of tasking someone to do this, kill somebody, um, we shouldn't do that, but instead we'll, we'll create this, this, these conditions where this person dies and therefore if, and when it does come out, we can say it wasn't us. Yeah. And most denials are pretty plausible because there is no smoking gun. Yeah.
2: But the social, you know, the the era of social media and fake news does exacerbate the potential for that con that conditioning Mm. that we've already identified was a was a key British trait historically to become amplified. That that the sowing of disinformation um, is a potent conditioner to a febrile political atmosphere that can engender a, a killing or an assassination by default by a third party that 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 we wanted to engender in the first place. So it it, it has the capacity mm. to to be a key aid. Yeah,
1: it's so interesting, isn't it? And even when it doesn't come to you know an actual killing or targeted killing, you can you can look at those parallels towards how much is that sort of setting the conditions for particular decisions to be made in, in elections, you know, uh, altering the narrative around an election in another country to depose a particular government or to bring someone specific in. I mean, how much of a collusion in your mind, are you focusing on targeted killing because that's your, your interest area or how much do you see it linked to collusion around other areas of foreign policy as well that may be slightly less lethal but nonetheless... Quite instructive when you are looking at influence and the influence of the UK and its partners over partner countries.
2: The targeted killing became the, the the specific lens through which we wanted to look at collusion first and foremost. Um, going back to the, the sort of the, the starting point of, of, of jihadi John, and seeing mm-hmm. seeing how targeted killing and collusion in that became became headline news, became an important way that Britain was dealing with a, with a contemporary security problem, and then trying to sort of work backwards from that. Was the reason why we wanted to keep keep time to killing as our sort of primary focus. However, I think that this project is probably going to open the doors to, to sort of other elements too, where, where collusion has resulted in, say, changes of government. Mm. Um, so it's it, it's a it's a first step.
3: And it ties into that broader idea about covert action more generally, which is what impact can one expect from from covert action? And the general consensus is You can only give history a helping hand. You you can nudge events in the right direction, Um, but it's very difficult to overthrow a government from scratch. You need to have rebels in place who you you can support. If you want to manipulate an election, you need to have divisions that you can exploit. You can't create those divisions from from scratch. So what we see with the Russians in twenty sixteen, for example, it, it wasn't getting trump elected per se it was exploiting the divisions which enabled trump to be elected there's a kind of similar principle i suppose
1: all of which seems to be a fairly good pitch for governments to have a clear idea of what their you know strategic objectives are so that you can be creating conditions that are hopefully supportive of them or at least you know something as you say kind of keeping your options open yeah
0: and I think that that plays into quite a lot of the conversations we've had around remote warfare that I think parallel your own work around how this, because it feels one step removed from your own forces doing the action, it can present the idea of this being risk free or a lower risk option. And I feel like that only perpetuates that danger.
3: Massively. It's a, it's a, I, I agree. I think it's a higher risk. That's why we definitely overlap because mm-hmm. if I was being really cynical, you could say if you wanted to... Take a drone strike and kill someone, and you do it yourself. Yes, there are going to be lots of criticisms, but at least you've got control of that. Yeah. And at least it's your technology, your man or woman, you're pressing the button, you're killing the yeah, person. Yeah.